Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Every single one of us in this room has baggage, things from our past that that we carry with us. We have wounds. Some of you have deep wounds. And each of us has a history. Um, You know, for better or for worse, it shapes us, it molds us, it affects us. It continues sometimes to wound and hurt us. And probably the biggest contributor to the baggage that we can have most often comes from our family of origin. Some of you perhaps, you know, more than your fair share of hurts. And for some of you, if you're honest, you may have even struggled your whole life to just be free of it. Uh, You know, it's interesting. I am now a guy in my 50s, and it's a sentence I never (laughs) thought I would hear myself say out loud. And the memory from those early years sometimes are just as fresh in my mind and heart as as though it happened yesterday. And I know I'm not alone. I I never cease to be amazed at the the depth of pain that people carry from their upbringing. There will be those in the congregation who maybe have to force themselves to sing good, good father, you know, because their earthly father was so villainous, so, and it's so hard to connect their spirit to a perfect heavenly father. There will be those in our church who skip Mother's Day at church because even if it was just a segment of our service or a, or a, a prayer or a thank you at the end, it's, it's too hard to try and celebrate Mother's Day after the kind of upbringing they had to endure. How, how does one make the leap to praising the Father of lights, you know, in whom there is no change or variation or shadow, when their earthly father was too busy abusing them. But the baggage we carry from our family can go beyond dysfunction and abuse. It can be even about um, the expectations placed on us, you know, to measure up, to do more, to be more. It, It can be about the certain views that we inherited on God and religion and people and prejudice, money and success. It's like they were handed down to us and they shape us to this very day. And we wish they didn't. It it can be about a father who abandoned us, a a divorce that ripped our world apart, maybe a cold, distant lovelessness from one of our parents that just left a, a hole in our heart, a mile 
wide, uh, a mile deep, and we've ever since been trying to fill that hole. Um, might have been a harsh, temperamental impatience that always had us walking on eggshells in our home. A passive parent who let chaos reign. There's no end to the impact of what the Bible calls the sins of the father. And that's what we're going to begin exploring today. We have our family of origins and we wonder sometimes what they've done to us and are there ways that we can break free from repeating the same sins? And if so, how? And, and might we even be doing to our own kids things that we're not even aware of? Um, how has what has wounded us shaped us? Why is it that some people are, are broken by something and others, um, while deeply wounded, somehow become stronger from it? Uh, sometimes that pattern can play out differently within the same family even. You know, when does our pain and wounding, our, our hits and hurts, our abandonment and abuse cross over into needing the kind of help actually that, that can only come through those who have a gift of emotional and psychological and spiritual healing. I'm talking about, you know, an anointed, gifted Christian counselor. Um, so let's just say we have a lot of ground to cover over the next few weeks, but we'll cover it. We need to cover it because there are, are few places where we need to invite God into more. So, so let's start off with the idea itself today. What does the Bible mean by the sins of the father and, and the generational effect it brings? Uh, a lot, actually. The first it's mentioned, near as I can tell, is in one of the most famous parts of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Let me just read it for you. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, um, that is actually the, the second of the Ten Commandments, the commandment against idolatry. An, an idol is something that is made to represent a, a picture of God, something that captures the essence or image of a deity. And throughout time, it has usually been done through some type of statue that would be made and would be bowed down to and worshipped. And in the second commandment, God says, please, whatever you do, don't do that. Don't use any kind of image that is going to uh, reduce me to less than something that I really am or that is going to distort who I really am because nothing that you could ever make or fashion or imagine could begin to capture my wonder, my majesty, my power, my mystery. All, all that you would end up doing is putting me in a, in a box, making me into something smaller than what I really am. I would be so distorted that you would end up with a, a picture of God that would have very little to do with my real character and my real personality. And then you'd be tempted to take that idol, that image, 
and make it your object of worship. I would mislead you about who I am, or it would mislead you. It would uh, create misunderstandings about who I am, and then it would become a substitute for who I am. So please, God says, don't do it. You'll end up with a false image of me, and that means a false relationship with a false small g God. But then did you notice what was added to that commandment? What happens if something like idolatry is allowed to take root? Let me read it again. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so there you have the first instance in the Bible referring to the sins of the father and the impact it has on the generations to come, specifically the the third and fourth generations. Now, the reason I think that it talks about three or four generations is because in the ancient Eastern culture of that day, that was the family unit. You know, they thought of a single cohesive family unit as being three to four generations generations together. In fact, um, that's how they lived. It's how many continue to live. I experienced this firsthand in my trip to the Middle East. Four generations living together in a household, and that was pretty common throughout the world until relatively recently. They didn't separate on their own the way that we do today. They were all together. So the effect of the father, the grandfather, the impact of the parents would endure for good or ill for as long as that family existed. But um, it's really not all that different today. I am part of a four-generation family, which means you know, my family of origin is currently impacting four generations. And the idea is a recurring theme in the Bible, actually, uh, regardless of the nature of the sin. Here's another uh, reference to it just a few chapters later from the same section of the Bible. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And then again, in in the fifth book of the Bible called Deuteronomy, we read about the same idea. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, what does this mean? Sins of the father, children punished, entire families for generations affected. Can I first, I think it's important we talk about what it doesn't mean, first of all. It's not about God inflicting punishment on children for what their father or mother did out of spite or revenge. It's not about divine retribution handed out generation after generation, treating children as guilty for what happened instead of victims of what happened. Like, that's not what this is about. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to make this clear. It goes out of its way to say that when it comes to us and God, it's all about us 
and God, okay? No one else. No matter what our parents did, there is no generational punishment inflicted on us or our children because of something someone else did. In fact, there's this entire section of the Bible where uh, making sure we get that down is, is spelled out. It's a word from God through a prophet specifically designed to prevent people from, from taking passages that we've just read about sins of the father impacting three or more generations to, from taking that the wrong way. Now, just quick background. There was a time when people thought you inherited guilt, specifically the guilt of your parents. Not just that you might have been influenced by your parents' sin or hurt by it, but that you were also guilty for it and should be punished. Not only by God, but by the law. They even took verses like we just read and said, see, this, this is the way it works. But, but that was not what God had in mind by the sins of the father being passed on to the children. So he sent his prophet Ezekiel to speak into this situation. It was a very direct, very pointed message about what the sins of the father meant and very specifically what the impact on future generations did not mean. Because God didn't want there to be confusion about this. So let me read it. Suppose a certain man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not feast in the mountains before Israel's idols or worship them. He does not commit adultery. He's a merciful creditor, not keeping the items given as security by poor debtors. He does not rob the poor, but instead gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He grants loans without interest, stays away from injustice, is honest and fair when judging others, and faithfully obeys my decrees and regulations. Anyone who does these things is just and will surely live, says the sovereign Lord. But suppose that man has a son who grows up to be a robber or murderer and refuses to do what is right. And that son does all the evil things his father would never do. He worships idols on the mountains, commits adultery, oppresses the poor uh, and helpless, steals from debtors by refusing to let them redeem their security, worships idols, commits detestable sins, lends money at excessive interest. Should such a sinful person, person live? No, he must die and must take full blame. But suppose that sinful son in turn has a son who sees his father's wickedness and decides against that kind of life. This son refuses to worship idols on the mountain, does not commit adultery, does not exploit the poor, but instead is fair to debtors and does not rob them. He gives food to the hungry, provides clothes for the needy. He helps the poor, does not lend money at interest and obeys all my regulations and decrees. Such a person will not die because of his father's sins. He will surely live, but the father will die for his many sins, for being cruel, robbing people, doing what was clearly wrong among his people? What, you ask? Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No, for if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. And we can argue about whether that is a spiritual death, literal death, both, the, an eternal death. The child will not be punished for the 
parent's sins and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. But if wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. All their past sins will be forgotten and they will live because of the righteous things they have done. I think that's about as clear as it can get. The guilt and punishment of the sins of the father is not visited on the children. So what does it mean? If the sins of the father and the generational curse it brings isn't about children bearing the divine punishment or guilt of their parents, what does it mean? If we're not responsible for what our parents did, what is the nature of this generational shadow, this generational punishment that is passed on? Um, The big idea is that sin has a corporate dynamic. We don't talk enough about the seriousness of sin. And, And while only one person bears the guilt for doing something, have you noticed others around bear the effect of what they've done? Bear the consequences sometimes. They feel the impact. They are subject to the influence. And sometimes for a long time, like as in third and fourth generation, meaning the ripple effect can tear through a family, father to son to grandson. And the Bible makes it very clear that sin has this ripple effect. It's not something done in isolation, like someone driving under the influence who crashes into another car, you know? The sins of the fathers are infected into this ripple effect. So our, our families of origins mark us in some way, often for good or, or for not so good. And when it's not so good, the impact of sin can, can deeply wound us. It, it leaves scars. And we can walk through the rest of our life with a limp. It can leave behind gaping holes in our heart. And, uh, and some people spend a lifetime trying to desperately fill it. When there is sin and dysfunction in a family, it can affect the children and the children of those children. I feel like many of you, you just know this intuitively. You've lived it. Um, whether or not you even knew there was a biblical precedent for this. But let me just share some stories to illustrate the point. I read of a man who said that when he was a boy, he was hospitalized and put into a coma. And no one was sure if he would even recover. But some days later, he began to respond to treatment. And when he came out of his coma, the first person he saw was his father standing by his bedside. And the little boy's first instinct was to reach out and ask that his father would hold him and kiss him. And when he asked, his father recoiled and stepped away and said, you're not that sick. It's like, that shaped him. It shaped his life in regards to issues of intimacy. And I suspect that would have shaped anyone. 
I, I remember as a small kid, maybe four or five years old, my dad uh, lifting me up on the kitchen counter and saying, do you trust daddy? Yes, I trust daddy. Uh, do you know daddy loves you? Yeah, I know daddy loves me. Well, jump off this counter and I'll catch you. So I would take the leap and sure enough, I'd be caught in those strong arms. And then he'd face me towards the, the cupboard. Do you trust me? Yeah, I trust you, Danny. Fall back. That's scarier. But I would do it and always be caught and, and want to do it again and again. He was illustrating something to me about his character and where I could put my trust Actually, he was probably illustrating something to the church as well, because I ended up in the message that Sunday. But um, <laughs> it's, like, it's like when my girls were younger and I'd sit with a pen and paper on Saturday night, like, do something interesting <laughs> or profound. I need, daddy needs fresh illustrations. Um, but <laughs> I, read, I read of another father who wanted to teach his six-year-old daughter about the world. So, so he had her stand on the edge of her bed. And just like my dad, he stood a couple feet away and he said, jump, honey, I'll catch you. And hesitantly, the little girl leapt off the bed. But her father moved back and let her fall to the floor. And when she hit the ground, she, she cried. Why did, why did you drop me, Daddy? Because I want you to learn not to trust anyone. And guess what? Mission accomplished. She struggled with trust the rest of her life. I don't know if there's any um, Springsteen fans in the... Uh, thank you, Frankie. Thank you. Uh, for you millennials, uh, Bruce Springsteen is like um, Ed Sheeran, but good. Is that? Church split. Okay. In, in his autobiography, Bruce Springsteen writes about his father and these sort of uh, impacted me. Let me just read some of his words. He says, um, as a child, you don't question your parents' choices. You accept them. They are justified by the godlike status of parenthood. If you aren't spoken to, you're not worth the time. If you're not greeted with love and affection, you haven't earned it. If you're ignored, you don't exist. Control over your own behavior is the only card you have to play in the hope of modifying theirs. Maybe you have to be tougher stronger, more athletic, smarter, in some way better, who knows. One evening my father was giving me a few boxing lessons in the living room and I was flattered, excited by his attention and eager to learn and things were going well. And then he threw a few open palmed punches to my face that landed just a little too hard. It stung, I wasn't hurt, but a line had been crossed. I knew something was being communicated. We had slipped into the dark netherland beyond father and son. I sensed what was being said. I was an intruder, a stranger, a competitor in our home, and a fearful disappointment. My heart broke, and I crumpled. He walked away in disgust. When my dad looked at me, he didn't see what he needed to see. That was my crime. 
So whether it's Bruce Springsteen or you or me, I, I think you agree that there is definitely something to this principle of the sins of the father impacting generations to come, the sins of the mother, the grandmother, the grandfather. I find it interesting when the sciences actually confirm long-standing biblical principles. I don't need the sciences to confirm the veracity of scripture, but the more advances science makes, the more affirming of scripture it turns out to be. Um, in the behavioral sciences for, for decades, the, the, there has been a tool used called the genogram. Um, if you're a social worker, yeah, um, counselor, yeah, um, you're, you're well versed in this. I had to explore my own family lineage using this tool when I was studying counseling and family systems and child development. And it's not like a classic family tree where they're just interested in like um, lineage. Um, it, it's a, it can be a little more comprehensive or a little more pointed. You can actually do a genogram just about family health history, for instance. And it uses symbols and colors in various ways to help you track themes or trends or, uh, you know, when I did it all these years ago, to see it all on sort of one page, it was like, oh, it showed some themes. It actually showed a proud legacy of people on both sides of my family who were ministers, who were missionaries and church leaders. Stuff kind of made me proud. You see it all there. It showed some fairly long lives. Uh, it showed a trend of some melancholy of what we now call, you know, mental health challenges. It showed some history of sibling issues, years of great aunts and uncles, various generations being estranged from each other. Um, if you've ever done this or, or do it, 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 you may find themes of heart disease, favoritism, uh, criminality, uh, 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 generations that value education, have an artistic bent, have anger issues, on and on. And what's really interesting, though, is what's being discovered lately in, in what I'll call the hard sciences. And this may, this may be a bridge too far for some of you. I'm just telling you what has been discovered, and I'll gladly give you my sourcing and the articles afterwards if you're incredulous about what I'm about to share. But as science was discovering things like that diet and, and chemicals cause what they call epigenic, epigenetic, epigenetic changes or, or transferable hereditary changes, it opened the door to discover that certain experiences, child neglect, drug abuse, severe stresses, PTSD, also set off epigenetic changes to the DNA inside the neurons of a person's brain. So according to the new insights of behavioral epigenetics, traumatic experiences, uh, stuff from our past, or even our recent ancestors' past, can leave molecular scars adhering to our DNA. 
Jews whose great-grandparents were chased out of Russia, um, Chinese whose grandparents lived through the ravages of the Cultural Revolution, young immigrants from Africa whose parents survived massacres, you know, adults of every ethnicity who grew up in alcoholic or abusive homes, all carry with them more than just memories, apparently. Maybe if you've worked with or ministered to our indigenous population, like, this just rings true. Um, turns out, you might have inherited not just your grandmother's knobby knees, <laughs> but also her predisposition toward depression, caused by maybe the neglect she suffered as a, as a newborn. Or not, you know, if your grandmother was adopted by nurturing parents, you might be enjoying the, the boost she received um, thanks to their love and support. But this epigenetic thing can, can work in our favor to produce strength and resilience as well. Researchers at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta found that mice can pass on learned information about traumatic or stressful experiences to subsequent generations. It was embedded in their DNA after their genes were chemically altered by trauma. And, and um, it helps explain, I think, why people, well, they believe, uh, suffer from seemingly irrational phobias. It may be based on an inherited experience from their ancestors. Dr. Brian Diaz from the Department of Psychiatry at Emory said, we have begun to explore an underappreciated influence on adult behavior, ancestral experience before conception. Our results allow us to appreciate how the experiences of a parent before even conceiving offspring markedly influence both structure and function in the nervous system of subsequent generations. Such a phenomenon may contribute to the intergenerational transmission of risk for neuropsychiatric disorders such as phobias, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. Fascinating stuff. But of course we believe this is more than sociological. This is more um, than purely a scientific phenomenon, more than a theoretical exercise. There's something profoundly spiritual about this. The damage is often spiritual, and I believe the healing needs to be spiritual as well. Monique Robinson, in her book, Longing for Daddy, writes about how much she was impacted by her father walking out and abandoning the family. It made her believe that God the Father loved everyone but her. And she told herself she was dumb and she'd never finished college. She lost her virginity to keep her first boyfriend from breaking up with her. She began equating sex with love, anything to avoid being abandoned again. Um, in her book on forgiving parents, Leslie Fields writes about talking with her older sister who had had this troubled childhood, actually had run away from home time and time again. And now they were both aging adults, many years removed from their childhood, and they were vacationing together. And one night they stayed up late talking. And the conversation turned to their father. And out of the blue, her sister told her the secret. 
dad used to come into my room. And Leslie could only say, what, what do you mean, how often? And her now 53-year-old sister said, whenever he could, for many years, that's why I would run away all the time. Only then did she find out that her father had been sexually abusing her sister for most of her childhood. And then Leslie turned to her sister and said, he came into mine too. And they sat together in silence for a while. And her sister said, you know, dad ruined my life. And it's not just the dads, it's, it's the moms. The sins of the mother can rain down on us as much as the sins of the father. But does this have to be our final chapter? The hits and the hurts are there and they hit and they hurt like hell. But does it have to be the final word? No, no, a different chapter has been written for Christians and I believe God can help you Christian write a new chapter. If part of the cause and effect is a spiritual one, then part of the solution and the healing is a spiritual one. And we'll start exploring that next week. Some of you have been carrying this baggage for a long time and and it, it, it may not have healed, you know, and it may not heal just like that. It can be often that our healing is a process And so I hope that you'll stick with us in this series. Take me up on the challenges. Take me up on the homework, if you will. But I'll just leave you with this, a theme that I think needs to come up again and again over the next few weeks. I am a proud Ganyu, but that is not my defining identity. I love being a husband and a father. And some of you would proudly say that is your main identity. It's actually not mine. Being a pastor is not my primary identity, thank goodness. Uh, Being chubby and balding and 50 and a trivia nerd and an Enneagram 5 is only scratching the surface of who I am. Here's my primary identity. I'm a child of the king. I'm an heir of the father. I've been bought at a price. I'm a friend of God. I'm a member of Christ's body. I was chosen before the creation of the world. I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I'm a new creation. I've been born again. You may have been victimized, but listen, you are not a victim. You are so much more than your last name so much more than your past experiences. If you have made Jesus Lord, you have been adopted into his family. You are his son. You are his daughter. You are born of God. And that trumps all other DNA and genes and nurtured nature, habits, trauma. Ephesians 2.19 says, you are first and foremost a member of Christ's household. That's who you are. We stand with me and let's declare it. Let's remind ourselves of it. Let's preach it to our own heart. What matters most is not who I think I am. It's who God says that I am. Amen? Amen. Amen.